Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave? Wake up, America, wake up! political division in the country undeniably deep right now. The big question on a lot of people's minds, can Americans come together and heal? I'm Van Jones, and this is Uncommon Ground. Welcome back to Uncommon Ground. This is a show where we are exploring what it takes to make meaningful change in a country as divided as our country has become Now, throughout this podcast series, we've mainly been focusing on national issues, stuff happening inside the United States. There's a bunch of stuff happening inside the United States. We've really stayed away from the big global issues. But with everything that's going on right now in Ukraine and every place else, I wanted to get into some of that stuff. You know, we do have global allies and global enemies and even global frenemies that all play a part in the international system. The United States is a part of. And because of globalization, we are living in a world that is more connected than ever, more interdependent than ever. And right now, in some ways, it feels more chaotic than ever. And so I wanted to talk to an expert in the field. And Ian Bremmer is a renowned political scientist. He's a foreign affairs expert. If you watch CNN at all, he's always on there, especially on Fareed Zakaria's show on most Sundays. He's a president and founder of the Eurasia Group. He's a two-time New York Times bestselling author. And there's just nobody better at making sense of the bigger world around us than Ian Bremmer. When I was a youngster, I mean, for a long time, I really thought that the only way I could make a real difference was if I ultimately got into government, Secretary of State, National Security Advisor, something like that. And, you know, I've, I've known those positions for the last several administrations, as have you. But I don't feel that way anymore. And I don't feel that way precisely because power is becoming so much more diffuse. He's got a new book out. It's called The Power of Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World. He also just, you know, talks about the term globalization itself, which different people may have different definitions of. But it's an important idea that the world's economies and cultures and peoples are being pulled together by trade and that that is uh, kind of changed the way the world functions and and globalization is going through a a crisis of of its own which we get into and Ian is just a genius I don't know how he does it I don't know how he tracks all this stuff I don't know how he explains it so well I love talking to him I think you're going to enjoy this conversation right after this break do you ever wonder where all your money went Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. 
Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. All right, the great Ian Bremmer <laughs> on Uncommon Ground. I am very, very glad to have you on. You're obviously one of the great luminaries of our time and somebody who has just spent really your whole life trying to figure out some of the, the toughest problems, economics, geopolitics, and you have a new book. And the new book is called The Power of Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World. Uh, why did you write this book and why did you write it now? I wrote the book in part because most of my life I've been writing about how the global order is coming apart. Because the geopolitics, just economics has recessions, it has boom and bust cycles. In fact, we're, a lot of people are really concerned that the world's going to head into a recession in the coming months. Geopolitics has a bust cycles too. And it's when the institutions that we have increasingly aren't fit for purpose for the new balance of power. And you and I have watched as institutions, our own in the United States, domestic political institutions and democracies around the world, and the broader architecture of the global order, we've watched as it's eroded and become delegitimized and increasingly obsolete over the last 20 years. And so we're seeing as a consequence of that, this emergence of these crises. And it feels to me that, yes, we don't like the crises, but actually the seeds of a new global order, the precise things that will force us finally to get off our asses and start reforming our institutions start creating new institutions that are fit for purpose, start electing the leaders that we need, it comes directly from these crises. And so that makes this a much more hopeful book at a time that we obviously need a much more hopeful view of where humanity is heading. Well, that's, that's the most hopeful spin I've heard on this <laughs> collapsing catastrophe dumpster fire that I feel like we're in most of the time when I'm on the news. Uh, and, and trying to cover this stuff and trying to talk about this stuff. You know, when you talk about the this geopolitical recession, I mean, what you're talking about is that after World War II, we built a bunch of institutions, whether you're talking about the United Nations or, or NATO or the IMF, the World Bank. There's a number of institutions that, led by the United States, frankly, we set up to try to make the world work better so we wouldn't find ourselves back in, an, in a third world war right away. And for a while warts and all, those institutions seem to be functional. Now, it doesn't seem that way. Most of the problems that you mentioned in the book, whether it's global warming, which is one of your, your, your things, or climate change, or artificial intelligence, or pandemics, these are not things we're responding to well right now. 
And so I want to get into some of the solutions and why that is. But I also just want to back up a bit because you are a bigger champion for globalization than I was 20 years ago. I was one of the young people who was getting tear gassed in Seattle, <laughs> protesting the World Trade Organization. I got run over by a police car in uh, D.C. protesting against the World Bank. So I was more on the anti-globalization side. And some of the inability that we've got to face some of the crises now comes from, I think, the downsides of globalization. And I want to just talk to you as somebody who, you know, you, you have a pretty balanced view, view, but on the whole, you've been more of a champion. I would say in the book, you talk about the tension within the United States being a barrier to solving these problems, the tension between the U.S. and China being a barrier to solving the problems. But to me, those tensions in some ways come out of the downside of globalization. So let's just talk about China. We were kind of promised that China was going to go from being a poor enemy to a rich friend, right? If we traded with them, if we brought them into the, the new economic order, if we were nice to them, if we, you know, starting with ping pong all the way to factories, that we were going to have a poor enemy is going to become a rich friend. And instead, it's become a rich enemy. And that is doesn't feel that great. How, how do you see that? Because, you know, you're, I think you've been one of our, our strongest champions of trying to keep this relationship together as best we can. So first of all, I would call him a rich frenemy and not a rich enemy. And I think those <laughs> are very different things. The Russians are an enemy. The Chinese are not. We know that we need to work with China. They know they need to work with us. And that is actually a significant boundary that helps to avoid us getting into a cold war with each other, never mind a hot war. And that that boundary doesn't exist with the Russians, right? Which makes it much more dangerous. But before I answer that question, I, I, I think that you, you set this up too well. And so you and I should talk a little bit about what we really think about globalization. What does it mean to be a champion of globalization? Because I'm not a champion of globalism, but I am a champion of globalization. Globalism is the idea that you have globalization and everything will work itself out. You don't need government intervention to ensure adequate redistribution to take care of all of the people that are left behind. That's been a failure. But globalization for 50 years, I mean, if you look around the world, it's not just multinational corporations and banks getting rich. It was also the creation of a global middle class. It was unprecedented human growth, educational growth, women getting into cities and having a chance to be educated. It was incredible healthcare growth and unprecedented expansion of lifespan and improvement of healthcare. I mean, all sorts of things, reduction of global poverty. Humanity has never seen a period of expansion of well-being that we have experienced through globalization. And I am an unapologetic champion of that, and I still am. But I also believed that a lot of people in positions of power in wealthy countries thought that that was enough and refused to take accountability and responsibility for people like yourself that felt like we are getting nothing. I think it's very helpful. And I think the upside of globalization was we got a lot more cheap stuff uh, which was good, <laughs> you know, on the whole. I mean, we were able to get the benefit of global trade. At the same time, the government didn't do a lot for the people who saw familiar jobs leaving and unfamiliar people coming. 
I mean, that's a basic experience, I think, of a lot of people in the, the white working class is that familiar jobs left and unfamiliar people came. And they, they don't really see how either one helped them very much. And that seems to be the basis, the social basis of a lot of the instability and turbulence now, uh, the white nationalism, the, the right-wing populism, and other things that are, that are very disturbing to me. How do you account for that? How do you see that? You know, Obviously, everybody laments it. What do you wish had been done differently, and, and how do we do any stuff you want to do in the face of that now? The first thing you can do if you want to respond to a problem is identify it. Identify what the underlying reasons for the problem is. And, you know, one thing you point to, the United States today is the most economically unequal of all of the advanced industrial economies. So the, the economic stratification that has come not only through globalization, but in part because of globalization. And yes, a lot of jobs that went abroad and a lot of cheap stuff, but who's taking care of the middle class at home? And, and I don't want to describe this as if that's now the principal problem, because actually that's much more today. It's much more about displacement from technology and big data and deep learning and AI in the services sector and robotics and automation in the manufacturing sector, which is displacing far more work and leading to gig economy and people that don't yet have the kind of benefits working in the gig economy that they did historically working in full-time jobs. That is all the economy changing, the landscape changing, but the regulatory environment staying exactly the way it is. So in the same way that we can talk about how the Security Council for the United Nations was great in 1945 because all the winners of World War II had permanent veto seats and nobody else did. But in 2022, Russia's led by a fucking war criminal and the Germans and the Japanese are completely aligned with multilateralism and rule of law, but they can't have permanent seats. Why? Because they lost World War II. That's really stupid, right? Well, it turns out that the lack of ability to reform your institutions as the baseline for your economy and your politics and your society change, that's the fault of decades of leaders not taking the tough long-term responsibility of actually changing the way your institutions run to reflect a changing society. It's that simple. Well, well look, that brings us to really the heart of what your, your project now is. You talk about you know, what you're calling these Goldilocks crises. I want you to talk about that a little bit because I think most people, when you hear the word crisis, you think this is, you know, the definition of bad, bad, and very bad. But what you're saying is that used properly, these crises could help us to come up with new ideas, new structures, new institutions, new configurations, and in solving some of these problems, actually come up with a more stable you know, U.S. and global infrastructure for the next couple of generations so that there's work to be done here and there's there's a reason to be serious about it, but there's also hope in, in here. Let's just break that all apart, though. Let's talk about the, the difference between a Goldilocks set of crisis and maybe something else. So, I mean, let's talk about a crisis that's too small. Goldilocks means it's not too big, it's not too small, it's just right. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, obviously any crisis causes an awful lot of pain and damage and disruption. So we don't welcome the crisis, but we recognize when you have the crisis, it can create a transformative moment, but not if it's too small and not if it's too big. Crises that are too small, crack cocaine, right? Because 80s and 90s, people in power 
didn't care. It wasn't affecting them and their families. So that they, a lot of performative response, but not a willingness to do anything about it. Except to put a lot of people in prison. Yeah. That, that didn't look like them. <laughs> right. I mean, exactly. So you and I know when a crisis is suitably small that people in power aren't going to do anything about it. And fortunately, we haven't had crises that are so big that we can't respond. And I'm hoping that disruptive technologies in the 21st century aren't too big because we're done for as a species. And indeed, that might be why, I mean, it's possible. The existential issue is, is the reason we don't see life in the universe, not because it never exists, because there are all sorts of conditions that create life in the universe, but rather because when it exists, it exists for an eye blink cosmologically because once we start developing world-changing technologies, we just don't last for long. Let's pause on that because that's um, we're going to get to the hopefully the the more useful crises. But you're making, I think, an important point. One is that there are some crises, and use the term crises imperfectly. Like things that are very, very important to the people who are experiencing them, sharply felt, very, very heartbreaking. Like for instance, what happened with crack cocaine, but not broadly enough felt that the rest of society could respond intelligently. Instead, we'll just lock all those people up and we'll just ignore it. On the other hand, you know, you've made this point, and I think it's a, a chilling point, that once a species like ours gets to the place where we're no longer just trying to survive, but you know, on a planet that we happen to emerge on, that we can actually change that planet, you could change it in a way that kills you. And the reason that you might think that that's more likely than not is we don't see any other advanced civilizations out here. They're not, you know, SUVs coming here from Mars or from other places. So that might make you think <laughs> that there's probably a lot of life out there at some point, but it doesn't last very long because civilizations blow up their planets or they they change the the, the atmosphere of their planet in ways that kill themselves off before they can even get, get here. And if that's true, we could be the next civilization to do that to ourselves. And that should focus the mind on some of the stuff that you're talking about in your book. But you think right now, global warming is a Goldilocks type of crisis. You think that AI, the robots killing everybody, no, maybe that's going to be, if we manage properly, that can save us and help us. So let's get into the hopeful part of your message. Why do you think that we've got some crises that could be good for us, even though it's scary right now? So let me start briefly with the crisis that you didn't mention that I wrote about at the end of my book, which is Russia invading Ukraine. Right? It's interesting because it struck me at the time that this was a Goldilocks crisis. It was very clear that Putin hadn't read this book, right? <laughs> because for decades, you and I are watching as NATO is adrift and Trump says it's obsolete. And Macron says it's brain dead. Nothing's going to happen. And then Putin comes in and does the one thing that actually forces us to start taking this stuff seriously, which is he goes in and takes a big bite and Europe is at war. And it is just, he transgresses every boundary and he forces us to act together. And it's interesting because for almost a decade now, Russia had already been occupying Ukraine, but it wasn't a big deal. It didn't really affect us. They're not a NATO ally. We don't care about the Ukrainians. They're kind of corrupt. They're kind of small. They're kind of poor. So we'll put some sanctions on. We're not going to do anything. And then suddenly, 2022, February 24th, he comes in and actually it spurs to action. The Germans are finally going to spend on defense. 2% of GDP. We've been begging them. Three administrations, two different parties, nothing. And Putin convinces them to do it. Finland and Sweden joining NATO, sign us up. The Japanese, the South Koreans coming to the Madrid summit want to be a part 
of a broader coalition, not about pivoting to Asia or the transatlantic relationship, but trying to bring it together. That's a really big deal. So I say all of that. And, and absolutely in the same way that, you know, this is still an enormous tragedy that cannot be fixed for the Ukrainians. 44 million Ukrainians, like what they are experiencing is every bit as bad as anything we can imagine Americans going through who have their own domestic crises. I mean, it's just, it's appalling to think about the, the trauma that they will be experiencing that is generational, the most important incident of their lives. But this is a Goldilocks crisis. It's the one thing that's forcing us to actually reform and rebuild and expand and reimagine these institutions. So climate change. For decades, climate change was just like the way we thought about Ukraine from 2014 to 2022. It was exactly the same thing. It was a bunch of activists that were saying, you're going to destroy the planet. You got to do something. And the rest of us saying, OK, we'll we'll recycle. <laughs> okay, we'll like go vegan for a week, right? I'll try an impossible burger. But I mean, come on. We're talking about a, some polar bears and a few islands in the Pacific. We don't really care. We're not going to change our lives on the basis of that. And then what happens? Then suddenly it starts affecting us. It gets bigger and bigger. And suddenly it's about Florida and California and Texas. And it's about Australia and it's about Italy, and it's about birds falling dead from the sky in India and a trillion work hours lost this year because people, a billion people can't work outside after 10 a.m. And suddenly everyone understands there's only one side of this issue. 195 countries get together every year and agree that there's already 1.2 centigrade degrees of warming. Now, we may not all agree on how much we want to spend, we may not all agree on why we want to do it, but the point is that everyone now gets that you have to invest in a transformation. And that means that we are now not looking at three or four or five degrees of warming, but instead 1.5 or 2.5. Now, Van, I accept that that's too much and that's going to hurt a lot of people. It's going to cost trillions of dollars of damage, but we've accomplished that change in 10 years. And we've accomplished that change despite the fact that the Americans are dysfunctional politically and that the U.S. and the Chinese aren't cooperating. That's pretty extraordinary. So it's not that I'm choosing to look at this as glass half full. It's rather that I understand just how much the scale of this crisis is transforming society so that our kids and grandkids will live in a world that is post-fossil fuels, sustainably post-fossil fuels. And that'll be permanent. I think that's extraordinary. And I think we need to understand that in the context of all the other crises that are out there. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. 
When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. It is remarkable. You know, the, the right-wing media is still, I think, a holdout and I think a, a challenge We've got to figure out a way to, to move Fox News and others more to this conversation. But with that caveat, I mean, every significant global financial institution in the world is 100% on board with this, this energy transformation. It is a remarkable thing. When I was coming up, it really was the hippie weirdos against the corporations. That was the, that was the David and Goliath fight. That is no longer the fight. It's really big corporations, uh, financial institutions, technology folks, and everybody against the status quo, which is just always hard to budge. But that's not the same kind of a fight. But that whole thing would move along a lot better if the U.S. wasn't dysfunctional. You know, when I was coming up, it was, well, it's, you know, government regulators would be maybe on the side of the environmentalists versus big business. Now it's flipped. Big business is trying to get there on positive environmental outcomes, and the federal government's dragging its foot, not passing you know climate legislation, still funding the worst parts of you know, polluting industries and big agriculture and everything else. So you know things are changing, but maybe by having the private sector in the right place, it makes it easier to move the public sector. I mean, it's the private sector, it's NGOs, it's young people around the world, it's the EU, it's Japan, it's governors and mayors in the United States. I mean, Texas and California are doing an awful lot to transform their economies towards renewable energy for very different reasons and with very different ideological backgrounds. But, you know, I, when the interesting point on this is I've written all of these books that have been analyzing where the world is heading. And I've been very reluctant to write about, okay, here's what we need to do to fix it. And people have been pushing me, Ian, if you're going to write a hopeful book about crisis, you have to give solutions. And I am absolutely not willing to write a book of solutions that are not plausible. So I was just not willing to write a book that said, okay, here's what we can do if we can just remove the divisions in the United States. Here's what we can do if we can just have a kumbaya moment with the United States and China, because I know that's not possible. So I had to write this book saying, look, I understand that I don't care what I say, that for the next five to 10 years, the U.S. political system is still going to be the most divided and dysfunctional among the G7. And the U.S.-China relationship, the most two powerful countries in the world, are still going to not trust each other at all. And given that, can I write a hopeful book? And the answer was, yes, we, we actually, given the constraints of today's environment and given the constellation of actual human beings that live here right now on this planet with the power structures that exist right now, I can still write a hopeful book about how these crises are going to create the circumstances that will allow us to build a global order fit for purpose. Well, one key idea you have in that is the idea of practical cooperation. Uh, and I just for, I think, the Uncommon Ground community, uh, these are people in general who are trying to be bridge builders in their own worlds, people who in their communities, in their families, on their campuses, with their local governments and beyond, want to bring people together. It's just very, very hard. And you have an idea called practical cooperation, which you know, on its face, it seems very simple. But in the actual world in which we find ourselves, 
the polarization is so great that trying to cooperate with somebody that you don't agree with on a hundred other issues can be deadly. You know, your own base, you know, you're like, well, why are you working with the enemy? Why are you reaching out to those people? There's a, there's a toxicity. There's a, a Twitterization of everything that makes things difficult. Well, and yet you were literally one of the handful of best examples in our nation of precisely this with penal reform during the Trump administration. So you, you, I mean, you know, you live this issue in a way that I write about. You know, and and it's tough. And, you know, for me, you have to have a longer view and, and care about people more than you care about your social media profile. But I, I, I would like you to talk about this. You know, you people come to you for advice from all over, government folks, academic folks, business folks. I mean, you're in a lot of rooms with a lot of people. And I just wonder, what is it going to require for people to use these crises well? I mean, what, do you, what are you advising people? I mean, what do you see that's in the way? Because even with somebody like yourself pointing a path forward, there still are human beings that got to get up and do this stuff. How are you advising leaders these days? One of the things that's in the way is a lack of understanding that the next global order is not going to be populated solely, and in some areas, even primarily by central governments. Because we've lived our entire lives with an environment that if you want to do something, right, you got to kind of run a government or get to the central government. You got government for a relations division of your corporation, it's all in Washington. You wouldn't send those people to Austin or Sacramento, but no, actually, you need to do that. Look, when I was a kid, this is kind of a funny story. I'm in second grade, and my teacher, Mrs. Criticos, asked, we were talking about the presidency, and she asked, well, who would like to be president when they grow up? And I, you know, of course, raised my hand. And then she's like, well, Ian, why do you want to be president? Like, why the hell is she calling on me in this whole damn class? I look around, I realize no one else has their hand up. And I did, when I was a youngster, I mean, for a long time, I really thought that the only way I could make a real difference was if I ultimately got into government, Secretary of State, National Security Advisor, something like that. And, you know, I've known those positions for the last several administrations, as have you. But I don't feel that way anymore. And I don't feel that way precisely because power is becoming so much more diffuse. For me, the fact that when we talk about climate, we're actually talking about NGOs and young activists, and bankers, and corporates. When we talk about killer robots, we're talking about technologists, and coders, and public policy types. There's a whole group of people that are in tech companies, or in NGOs, or in big banks, that are literally making decisions that will affect the future of the planet in ways that government officials in Washington and Beijing are too slow, are too unaware, are too stultified, are too bureaucratic to recognize what's actually going on. And that transformation is scary, but it's also ripe with opportunity. It's an incredible transformation. Well, you know, that's very interesting, you know, because if you had a blank slate and you don't, you don't, you don't do blank slate, you do real politics and real world stuff. But if you, if you had a blank slate, you point out that in the old days, to fix everything, you try to get governments together. Now you're saying that it's government, it's also civil society, it's also technology, it's also banks, it's a whole different thing. What kind of institutions do you think we need in this new order that's emerging? Of course, we have no idea what it's going to ultimately be, but if you, if you had to think it up, if somebody said, look, give me some direction here. From a global point of view, what do you wish we had 
in place to deal with climate change? What do you wish we had in place to deal with the AI situation or to deal with pandemics? What what do we need that we don't have that if we did have, we'd be better off at a global level? I think something that not only we can do, but we are going to do in the next few years. I'm an analyst, and I think that you cannot respond to a problem unless you can identify it and define it collectively, right? Because then when you, anyone that's trying to fix it is rowing in the same direction, even if they're not actively coordinating, they all agree on what the facts are, which we have accomplished with climate change. We have this intergovernmental panel on climate change, 195 countries. It's been set up by the United Nations. It's governments, but it's also technocrats. It's also climatologists. It's also public policy, public intellectuals. They get together and they write this report every year about the state of the world in terms of climate exactly how much climate change, where it's impacting, what the impacts will be, what the scenarios look like in the future. And then from there, you start breaking down the problem. Well, we've got a biodiversity issue. We have a methane issue. We have a carbon issue. We have a new technologies investment issue. We have a deforestation issue. And you figure out which are most urgent, how much resource you need, which actors are most important, which are most problematic, and you try to work on them. In some places you work effectively, some places not. Okay, so I would argue that we need an intergovernmental panel on disruptive technologies, on artificial intelligence. We kind of know that we have these killer robots, lethal autonomous drones. We know that we have uh, offensive cyber weapons. We know that we have artificial intelligence algorithms that within two to three years will break the Turing test. In other words, you won't be able to tell a bot from a human being. And yet we don't have any institution globally that is even trying to identify which are the most dangerous disruptive technologies, how close they are to being realized, who are the principal actors that have them and possess them, who are the ones we really don't want to have them, and which could we create defenses for? I am completely convinced that we can do that. Well, look, you have a better understanding probably than most people of some of the dangers and the downsides of, of the disruptive technology. So we're trying to be hopeful so you gave us solutions. Can you just scare us a little bit, though, and talk a little bit about some of the dangers and downsides so that it fits your definition of the kind of crisis that will force us to take the action you're talking about? We now have some technologies, and it's very clear that AI bot that is capable of mimicking a human being beyond recognition in the hands of a cyber-advanced terrorist organization could clearly lead to World War III. Because you could create an environment around someone if you were able to hack their communications where they would believe things from both friends and adversaries that were absolutely not true. You could clearly create a financial crisis and a panic that would be unlike anything you've ever seen before. I mean, imagine if, you know, heads of major institutional investors or hedge funds were suddenly getting information from people that they thought were real human beings that they thought they knew, that reflected completely different realities from those that actually existed. I mean, this kind of control over disruptive technologies that change your behavior. Here, I'm not even talking about like a cyber attack directly bringing down a banking system. I'm talking about the ability of bad actors to make you think things that are not true are true, but not your belief system about Trump is good or Trump is bad, or January 6th happened or it didn't really happen, but rather people in power making different decisions. Then you have lethal autonomous drones. 
I mean, if you've seen those videos on killer bots and, and bot swarms, you know, micro bots that will be available much more easily than nuclear weapons ever were to bad actors in relatively short timeframes that would be able to assassinate pretty much anybody on the planet if they wanted to. Well, I mean, my God, if we don't prevent that from being in the hands of bad actors, then, I mean, our global system as we presently experience it cannot persist. So it is very clear that we are on the precipice, two years, three years, 10 years max, that some of these disruptive technologies will fundamentally threaten the way we presently exist on the planet in the way that nuclear weapons did when you and I were growing up. So this is not yet in front of us the way climate change is, but it will become so and bigger before climate change does. I appreciate your brain and your heart and, and, and all that stuff so much. And my last question is a very simple question, which is that, you know, this has been a very turbulent, crazy several years. I mean, the Trump, the Trump years were very unusual. COVID was very unusual. We're now under a different administration in the United States, but we've got inflation like we haven't seen for you know a generation or more. We've got a bunch of stuff that's going on. And you just were recently at Davos, the World Economic Forum where a lot of great leaders and thinkers and captains of industry, you know, go to sit around and, you know, close first, you know, knee to knee and talk to each other and, and try to figure out what to do and, and, and what's next. As you left Davos and as you kind of look at where, where we are now, were there any signs of hope? Well, let's keep in mind that Davos is a comparatively small slice of what humanity looks like. And when we think about where global power is held today, it does look a lot like Davos. But when you think about where global power will be held in 20 years, you're talking about millennials, 90% of whom aren't in developed countries. And these people are educated and they're connected, they're online. So the world is going to look radically different. And the, both the challenges and also the solution set and maybe Davos is going to look radically different in 20 years, or maybe it's going to be a completely different set of institutions. I suspect it'll be a bit of both. So you need to recognize as you're thinking long term that you're talking to a slice and a critically important slice, but also, you know, a slice that's changing very quickly. But I would say what was interesting most about this year's Davos is, of course, it happened right after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There were no Russians at Davos, not one, not one company, not one government official, not one oligarch, none. And this is a group that has spent a lot of money, you know, promoting their agenda and partying like hell in Davos historically. And it was very interesting. There was a large Ukrainian delegation, and I spent a lot of time with them, with the foreign minister, the deputy prime minister, the mayor of Mariupol, the mayor of Bucha where the war crimes were. I mean, I sat and had dinner with these people and the level of trauma that they have experienced and the impact, you know, the United States back in 1989, we were the example for other countries around the world, personal liberties for the way that you wanted to be governed. And, and I am so appreciative to the Ukrainian people for helping the attendees of Davos remember what it is that we are supposed to be standing for. Because it's not just they're fighting so that we don't have to, it's that they are suffering 
at the hands of a criminal regime that we need to stand up to. And we've not done a lot of that in the past decades. There've been a lot of red lines that we've allowed to be crossed. There've been a lot of values that we purport to stand for, and it turns out to be very hypocritical. There's a lot of behaviors that we, the United States, have been engaged in that we should be ashamed of at home and abroad. And the Ukrainians are forcing us to look for our better selves. And I am so appreciative of that. That does not begin in any way to show an understanding of what they're experiencing right now, but we have to recognize it. Hey, listen, that's powerful. Look, man, we could talk for a long time, and I, and I hope that I'll have you back on this podcast, and I hope that we'll talk many, many more times. But look, this is a very, very important book, and I hope that everybody who is under the sound of my voice will go out and get it, get it on your Kindle, get it on your audio book, get it in physical form, or all three. It's called The Power of Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World by my good friend, Ian Bremmer. Thank you, brother. We see the beauty of hope. That spirit is so beautiful. Those who become American citizens love this country even more. And that's why the Statue of Liberty lifts her lamp to welcome them to the Golden Door. Man, that dude is smart. <laughs> he is a world-class intellectual with, with world-class ideas and, and a world-class heart. I really love talking with him. And the things I get whenever I spend time with him and, and folks at his level, you know, ideas matter. And especially in a crisis. I, I think sometimes we forget everything that exists at some point was just an idea. The United Nations was just an idea that somebody had. The United States itself was just an idea. Everything comes from the land and labor and love. And there might be some cosmological love in there that got it all started, but that's where it all comes from. And it gets pulled together by people who have an idea and who take action. And I hope that what you take away from it is that we need some new ideas that we need some new institutions, that we need some new stuff. Maybe in your own life, you know, there's something going on where the existing group of people aren't doing a great job. Do you need a new parents coalition at school? Do you need a new club on the block or on the campus? Do you need a new committee at work or a new Slack channel at work? Because you have the power, especially in this situation, to change the conversation, to put forward new ideas, to pull people together into new committees that become new institutions that give us a new possible future that is in your hands as much as it is anybody else. And the other thing I got from the conversations that crises are important. You hate them. Nobody wants a crisis. But you think about when you go to the doctor and they say, listen, this is what's going wrong. That's a terrible moment, but it also becomes the opportunity for you to change what you're eating, change how you're living, change how much you're sleeping. Out of that crisis comes a whole new and hopefully better life. Nobody likes to go through a breakup. It is terrible. But sometimes you look up and a year later, your whole life is better because that ending opened the door for a whole new set of beginnings. You know, crises are important. 
And crises can be good if we use them for that purpose. And, you know, this is a tough period. I think sometimes people think I'm a Pollyanna guy, a Kumbaya guy, because I'm trying to get people together. I'm trying to get people together because it's tough. I'm trying to get people together because we need new ideas, because we need new partnerships, because it's tough. And uh, I had a mentor that used to say, the future is worth fighting for and the future is worth working for. And I think the future is better when we work on it together. And people like Ian Bremmer, I think, who are so bold and willing to change global institutions, I hope give us permission to at least change our own local institutions and the institutions that we call our own lives. And that's what this podcast is all about. This is Uncommon Ground. I'm Van Jones. See you next time. Uncommon Ground with Van Jones is an Amazon original production. It's produced by Magic Labs Media and Wonder Media Network. Our producers are Teddy Alexander, Maisha Dyson, Grace Lynch, Taylor Williamson, Adesua Akbonile, and Lindsay Credible. Our managing producers are Laura D. and Eliza Mills. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and Morgan Jones. Our theme music was composed by The Grand Mess. Publicity for the show is led by Alice Zoe, Andy Lichtenfeld, Didier Moraes, Chantel Muentes, and Sam Petherbridge. Special thanks to Jana Carter, Alex John Burns, Seven McDonald, Drew Schwindeman, Brianna Jones, Eric Carter, Trevor McNeil, Carrie McCarran, Joe McMillan, Steph Walkeen, Vanessa Redbert, Ty Jacobson, Marshall Louie, and Chris Jockerman. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Behind every successful business is a story, and some of them might surprise you. Like how Chobani's first yogurt factory was discovered on a piece of junk mail. Or how the founder of the multi-million dollar cosmetics brand, Drunk Elephant, was told by everyone, including her own mother, that the name sounded like a dive bar. I'm Guy Raz, and on my show, How I Built This, I talk to founders behind the world's biggest companies and brands to learn the real stories of how they built them. In each episode, you'll hear entrepreneurs share moments of doubt and failure and talk about how they were able to overcome them on their way to the top. How I Built This is like a masterclass in innovation and creativity, a how-to guide for navigating life's challenges from the people who've done it all. Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.